Good morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this reminder of your great love for us that we have seen in the bread and the cup, a love that reached out to us while we were still sinners, brought us to yourself. Thank you that in the Lord Jesus we are clean and that as we even encounter this world, as we go through day by day, we can come to you and receive the sort of daily washing that befits a disciple, befits one who trusts in you, that your word assures us if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, Father, I pray that you would speak to us through your word here, help us to apply it to our lives, that we might be better instruments in your hands to do your will and to bring you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite Proverbs is uh, Proverbs chapter 14, verse 4, where it says, Where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. Now, if that doesn't immediately ring bells for you, uh, it doesn't for a lot of people. I actually saw it quoted on a sitcom once. Uh, they were kind of making a joke of the Bible and used this verse to kind of highlight things that the Bible says that make no sense. But actually, the opposite is true. Uh, this proverb makes a ton of sense. Uh, here is a, another translation that uh, I think might make it a little clearer. Without oxen, a stable stays clean. But you need a strong ox for a large harvest. You see the point? You can have a clean barn, or you can have a big harvest, but you can't have both. You need to choose which one you want to have. If you want to have a clean barn, then don't get any oxen, but be prepared for some backbreaking work and small harvests. If you want a big harvest, Get yourself an ox, but get yourself a shovel as well, because there's going to be messes. I love the practical wisdom of the book of Proverbs. Let me apply that proverb to ministry. Ready? Ministry is messy. Ministry is messy. If you want to see a harvest, you need to be ready for the messes that come along with it. And that applies to the harvest of souls as much as it does to the harvest of crops. Ministry is messy. I remember a time in the Wausau Church, we had been renting for 10 long years, longing to be in a building, uh, saving our money and seeing building costs rise. And, and finally, we were able to go ahead and we gave more than we thought we could give and we worked harder than we thought we could work, and, and praise God, one day we got into our new building. It was a time of rejoicing. It wasn't long after that that I walked into that building on a Monday morning and saw one of our walls caved in. Something or someone had just crunched this wall. And I stood there in front of it, dumbfounded, not knowing what to think, not knowing what to do. 
And I came to find that the night before, our youth group had been in there, and a couple teenagers got a little rowdy, and one gave another a great big push and sent him flying into this wall, and it just buckled the wall. It took me a while to get over that mess. And there were some heart-to-heart discussions along the way. But at the end of the day, I had to accept that buildings are tools for ministry. It's the ministry that matters. It's the spiritual growth that matters. That messy people will make messes, and we get the opportunity to minister in there. We fixed the wall. And now, years later, I can see those goofy teens have grown up and turned out all right. And they're raising families that love Jesus. That's what matters. But ministry is messy, and it's messy wherever you go. It gets messy here. We've seen some messes over these past couple of years that I've been with you. And you're going to see more in the years to come. But the bottom line is, anytime you put a bunch of fallen people together, you're going to have messes. And that's what God does. He takes fallen people, people who have not yet been fully sanctified, combines them together for his purposes, and we work out those purposes in the midst of the messes. But here's the good news. God is at work in the midst of our messiness. He uses even the messiness to shape us more into the likeness of Christ. We're all in process as God takes us from who we were before we met Christ to what we will one day be in him. Along the way, we'll struggle, as fallen people do, as we try to advance the kingdom. But that's a part of his amazing plan. And the way we resolve those struggles and accomplish those kingdom goals is as important as the outcomes we achieve. God uses the very messiness to shape us into the likeness of Christ. In chapters 11 and 12 of the book of Nehemiah, we find Nehemiah has just completed a building project of his own. The wall around Jerusalem, it's fixed. The gates are hung. The city is defensible now. He has centered the people of God on the word of God. He has dealt with some sin issues that have arisen. He's got an agreement on how they're going to handle those issues in the future. Now what? What comes next? Well, chapters 11 and 12 show us how Nehemiah fills this city with people and with praise. Fallen, flawed, messy people singing the praise of the eternal God. And what what Nehemiah did in terms of the city he had restored we can do in terms of this building we occupy here. Two things, fill it with people and fill it with praise. Chapter 11 speaks about filling it with people. Let's start there. They had a city now. The walls were repaired. The city was inhabitable. But it didn't mean that the city would automatically be filled with people. 
They had to figure that part out. They had to work on that. They had to apply their sanctified imagination. They had to think through how to fill it with people. And verse 1 of Nehemiah chapter 11 tells us the leaders were living there. Maybe they had agreed to. Maybe they had to. There are some cities today that require city workers to live in the confines of the city. I know Chicago does that. But uh, there were others who didn't live in the city, and he needed to get more of them into the city. How do you do that? Jerusalem needed to be filled with people. So how do you take an aspiration to see a city filled with people and turn that aspiration into reality? Nehemiah was a very practical leader, and he came up with a couple plans. And the first plan we see in verse 1, and that was to cast lots. Verse 1, now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. So they cast lots. I don't know if it was the winners or the losers that got to move to Jerusalem. It doesn't matter because they had determined that God would speak through that instrument. And they had committed themselves to doing what God revealed. And so if you got picked, you moved into Jerusalem. You saw that as God's direction for your life. That was strategy number one. Strategy number two, we see in verse two, and the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. So some got chosen by lot to move there. Others willingly volunteered, said, I'll go. I'll live in Jerusalem, and other people bless them as they did. Casting lots, taking volunteers, that was Nehemiah's strategy for filling the city with people. Now, think about the church. We have a building here where we can worship, but that doesn't mean it will automatically be filled with worshipers. You got any empty seats near you? Got a few? I long to see this sanctuary filled with people praising God. Maybe many times over. As John Piper said, evangelism exists because worship does not. We need to reach more and more people to help them to become worshipers of the living God. I think we can all resonate with that aspiration. It's a good thing. We want that to happen. But how do we turn that aspiration into reality? How do we fill this place with people who are becoming worshipers of the living God? Let me ask you this. If somebody came in here who wasn't already a mature Christian with the same background you may have, what would that person's experience be like? Think of someone you know who is not a believer. Would that person feel welcome? if they came with you here on a Sunday morning? Would, would somebody greet them at the door? Would somebody seek them out? Would somebody ask them about themselves? Early in the days of uh, the Wassa Church, we were meeting in a rented union hall. So, you know, these, these union workers uh, occupied the place during the week, and this little group of evangelicals occupied it on Sunday morning. And uh, every now and then, people would, would wander in, and one Sunday morning, I got up to preach, and I saw two women I'd never seen before sitting 
toward the back. And I thought, okay, mental note, after the service, seek them out. So after the service, we had a snack table in the way back, and they made their way to the snack table, grabbed a snack each, and took out a cigarette each and lit up. And it was like the parting of the Red Sea. God's people just scattered to the edges of the building, and these two women were alone at the snack table smoking. And I thought, this is what we're here for. These are the people we've been praying for. I, I grabbed a little plate and said, do you need an ashtray? And I engaged them in a little bit of conversation. What would somebody different from you experience coming here? Would they feel welcome? Would they be able to find their way through the service? Would they fit into the worship that we have? I was uh, at an Episcopal service once a number of years ago, and uh, they were conducting this service, and uh, there were a couple of books in the rack in front of me in the pew, and I couldn't tell where to go in the books. And I had the wrong one open, it turned out, because somebody saw me struggling and came over and got me on the right page. It, it was just confusing to be in there. And I'm so grateful that, that we put things on the screens to help people, make them not feel foolish when we say something or sing something together. But do they understand the language we use in our prayers? in the sermon, in our communion service? Does it make sense to someone who comes in here? What would it feel like to be a visitor at River Hills? Let me give you an opportunity to find out. Is there a non-Christian you know that you could invite to come with you on a Sunday morning and meet with you sometime during the week to talk about their experience? I had a friend who was the treasurer of the Marathon County Fair Board and uh, he asked me if we had any groups in the church that might be willing to clean up the fairgrounds uh, during the uh, Marathon County Fair. And I thought, I know a youth group that needs that kind of work, picking up cheese curds and elephant ears and garbage. <laughs> and these same ones that took care of my wall, right? <laughs> I said, yeah, we got a group for you. And uh, after the week was over, he said, where should I send the check? And I said, oh, would you mind bringing the check to our service? I'll call you up. You can come up here and present it. It'll affirm these kids that cleaned up the fairgrounds all week, and it'll be a, a really good thing for the church to see. I had an ulterior motive. I, I wanted my friend to see our worship service. I wanted him to hear the gospel as, as, uh, and see God's people praising him together. And I wanted the opportunity to talk to him about what he experienced. So that week, we got together for coffee, and I asked him about his experience. Were you greeted at the door? Did somebody give you a program? Did anybody seek you out after the service? Uh, could you understand what we were saying? Did it make sense to you? We had just a great interaction over his impressions of the service, coming in as someone who'd never been with us before. I'd encourage you to consider doing something like that. When someone visits here, that person may not have the background and spiritual maturity that you have. That person may not even be a believer yet. Visitors tend to come reflecting all levels of spiritual maturity. 
And yet at each level, we can respond appropriately to their need. At each level, we can help that person take another step closer to Christ. We can build a relational bridge with that person. We can introduce that person to other believers. We can answer their questions. We can share the gospel. We can be there in their times of need. Why is that important? It's important because God cares about lost people. Maybe I'm reading something into this passage in Nehemiah chapter 11, but I see in this enormous list of people a great value that God places on each one. If you pre-read this passage over the week, my guess is that when you got to all the names, you probably skipped down to you hit narrative again. Did anybody read through all of the names out loud? Why did Nehemiah go to the effort of listing all of these people in chapters 11 and 12? He did it because these people are important to God. Every name on this list represents a life that fits into God's plan, no less than yours and mine. No one is unimportant. My guess is that if you could have gotten to know Salu, son of Mishalem, mentioned in verse 7, you'd have a profound appreciation for this guy. We don't know what he did, but we know he was a part of something great that God was doing. We've got a mailing list here of people who are members and regular attenders of River Hills. Probably not the most interesting reading in the world, But each person on that list is important to God, and each person on that list ought to be important to all of us. Each one has a part to play in something great that God is doing. Now, people who haven't yet visited River Hills are also important to God. But the problem is they're not here yet. They're still out there. And if we're sensitive to the Holy Spirit and we can think creatively, we can think of some ways to reach them and bring them from there into here. Just like Nehemiah brought people in to resettle Jerusalem. And those people who come from there to here will bring needs and messes and challenges with them. And that will be uncomfortable at times because ministry is messy. They'll do their share at contributing to the messes, but I'm asking you to sign on for some discomfort because that's often the price of ministry. People need what we have to give, and if it stretches us to provide it, well, that's a part of God's plan for growing us as well. When we're stretched and challenged, we grow. So reach out to those messy people and fill this building with flawed, broken, fallen, messy people. And then help them become worshipers so that we can fill this building with praise. Chapter 12 speaks about filling it with praise. Several things happen in chapter 12 in this regard. The first thing we see is purification in verses 27 to 30. Purification. Look at verse 30 with me for a moment. It says, And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people, 
and the gates and the wall. Purification. It's a curious thing. What did they do to purify themselves and the people and the gates and the wall? The root, the Hebrew word, uh, root of that word uh, purify means to be bright. Be bright. It's like shining something up. The, the word was used to describe the articles of pure gold in the tabernacle and later in the temple. It would come to mean to cleanse, and it was used to describe what lepers would need to do in order to be welcomed back into the community after they'd been healed. The concept of purification strongly linked to the holiness of God. Because God is holy and we are not, we need to be cleansed to come into fellowship with him. It's what happens when a person comes to faith in Christ. All of the filth that had covered us is washed away. And we are clean and we are pure in Christ. Now, the usage of this word in Nehemiah chapter 12 may have been somewhat ceremonial, but in the 95 times we see this word appear in the Old Testament, it's usually very practical and concrete. In 2 Chronicles chapter 29, for instance, it describes what happened to the temple when all the corrupt influences were taken out of it under King Hezekiah. Or in 2 Chronicles chapter 34, that same word describes what happened to the land when King Josiah tore down the high places, the Asherah poles, the carved idols, the cast images, all the things that would lead people away from God. All those things had to be dealt with. The land needed to be cleansed, purified. Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 30, elaborates... It tells us there that Nehemiah purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign. Everything foreign, everything that was strange, alien, heathen, he purified them of those things. Now, it seems to me that even if the purification that's described here is ceremonial, it still reflects decisions that people had to make for themselves about themselves and about the things that they were purifying. They had decided, we and these things are now set apart for the use of the Lord. We have been purified, made clean by the blood of Christ. We've been set apart for God's use. And the first thing then that we need to recognize if we're going to fill this place with God's praise is that we need to be pure vessels that he can use. When I was a kid, I came to the table to eat once without having stopped to wash my hands first. My mom noticed. She said, wait a minute. Go back to the sink, wash your hands before you come to the table. You always come to this table with clean hands. And if we're going to serve God, we need to come with clean hands as well. John chapter 13 that was read earlier, we see Jesus washing the disciples' feet and explaining that someone who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet, what comes in contact with this dirty world. We have had our bath. We've been purified, bathed in Christ. But each day we come in contact with a fallen and dirty world, and we need to wash up. 1 John 1.9, which was also read earlier, has been described as the Bible's bar of soap. It's how we clean up. It says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We confess he cleanses. Confession is necessary 
because we live in a dirty world. So the first thing we see is purification. The second thing we see is a parade in verses 31 to 42. These verses form an elaborate description of a carefully worked out plan for this great celebration. Two choirs, one with Ezra leading it in verse 36, one with Nehemiah following it in verse 38. Now, I don't know if that's a commentary on their singing voices or if it's commentary on their leadership styles or something else entirely, but two choirs on top of the wall of Jerusalem, proceeding in opposite directions, singing as they went. Uh, maybe they were singing antiphonally, and maybe they were echoing one another. I, I would love to know what they were singing. But then these two choirs met in the temple, and they sang together. Imagine the celebration. Verse 43 tells us, They offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. This was a hands-on celebration of what God had done. Uh, the wall was complete. It was strong. It was finished. And they could march on top of it and sing the praise of God so that everybody could see and hear. See, this, this was not just for themselves. This was a witness to the world as well. They were up on top of this wall. The enemies would be watching. The same folks who earlier said that if a fox ever climbed up on that wall, that fox would knock the wall down. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 3. But here we see in, in chapter 12, God's people marching on top of this wall, singing his praise in front of the enemies. It was a witness. It was a testimony. What was the meaning of the parade? It was this. This is God's doing. This is God's city. How do we celebrate God's doings in our lives? What are the parades of our life that celebrate God's activity? Pastor Steve and I have a mutual friend whose father survived cancer. And once a year, he threw a great big celebration to celebrate what God had done in his life. He invited friends in for the weekend for as much golf as they could play and as much food as they could eat. I have never golfed so much or eaten so much in a weekend in my life. It was so incredibly great. It was a party to celebrate what God had done, to give him the glory. It was a parade. So we see... Purification, we see a parade, and the final thing we see is praise, verses 43 to 47. Verse 43 shares some interesting detail. It says, And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Great sacrifices, great sacrifices. The Hebrew word, you want ready for a little Hebrew? I won't show you my slide on Moses this time, but ready to, to know a little Hebrew? Uh, the word is gadol, gadol. It's a wonderful word. I remember when I was studying my Hebrew and I got to that one, I thought it, it means great, like great big, 
Huge, enormous, gadol. You know, this is going to be a fun word. You know, gadol. The, the great sacrifices, gadol. Now, the implication is quality or quantity. Huge, huge numbers of sacrifices. God's people could give freely because they knew God had provided greatly. And it tells us also in verse 43 that they were rejoicing because God had given them great joy. Guess what word shows up again? It's gadol. Their joy was gadol. And everyone sang, the men, the women, the children, all of them together singing. What a great picture. No worry about the quality of voices. Everyone's singing. And it says the sound could be heard far away. Does that sound at all familiar to you? Now, as we've gone through Ezra and Nehemiah, think back to what happened when the foundation was laid in Ezra uh, chapter 3. Ezra chapter 3, verse 13, there are some people that are rejoicing that the foundation's finally been laid for the temple. Others that are weeping and crying and grieving because it's nothing like Solomon's temple. And it says there, the sound could be heard far away. And the very next verse tells us that God's enemies were hearing this. And here we see these people now on top of the wall singing to the praise of God and their sound could be heard far away. Their worship is a witness to what God has done. Purification, parade, and praise. Fill God's building with people and with praise. I remember 10 years of renting space before the congregation in Wassa had its own building. I remember preaching here in Janesville at the Marshall Middle School before you got this building. And I can tell you in both situations, I learned something. A building is a blessing. A building is a blessing. This building is a blessing. Yeah, it's got its issues. But it allows River Hills opportunity to do more than you could do when you had to rent space. This building is a tool that can help you live out your mission of displaying the greatness of God by declaring his greatness as we do on Sunday morning, by growing in love toward God and each other, and by serving others for joy and his honor. I want to encourage you to think of ways in which you can fill this building with people and fill this building with praise. You'll find some questions for further thought in the insert in your program. I hope you'll make use of those throughout the week. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for providing for us. Thank you that you have given us some space that we can fill with people and with praise. Help us, Lord, to do that. There are people out there who need to know that a Savior has come, that they can know him personally, that he longs to meet them to receive them, to forgive them, to welcome them. Father, help us to see them as important and reach out to them. And then I pray, Father, that you would help us to help them become worshipers of the true and living God, that we may fill this place not only with people but with praise for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.